Hi, I'm Bradley Tusk, the host of Firewall. This episode is the final of our year-ended series, six episodes, each highlighting an industry of particular interest to us. We started with digital health, then we did fintech, media, sustainability, transportation, and finally we're closing with gaming. My guest for this is Christopher Michaels, but for those of you in the gaming community, you know him as Monte Cristo. Monty is an esports legend, to put it simply. He's been a professional gamer since 2005. He's a color commentator on many, many esports leagues tournaments. He's on esports franchises. He's a commissioner of a Counter-Strike League. I know this all seems totally weird to people kind of outside of the world of esports, but I will tell you that within that world, he's highly respected for his integrity, for his forward thinking, for his ingenuity. And so, look, this conversation is a little different than the last five we've did and, and Firewall in general. Um, he and I don't necessarily see the world the same way. Uh, when it comes to esports, I see it as an investment opportunity, and I look for opportunities to bring it to a wider audience uh, and to make money. And he sees it very differently. It's much more part of an insular community that he's trying to protect. So, you know, it's an interesting podcast because we're disagreeing quite a bit. Um, but I think we do agree that esports is really important, that it is going to sort of eventually be on par with traditional sports. Um, and that the way that we view esports and participate in them and gamble on them and everything else uh, will be as big of a part of our society as traditional sports are today. So I think it's an interesting podcast, not the easiest one we've ever recorded. Uh, not sure I've had a guest disagree with me quite so much, but uh, I think as a result, you'll find it interesting. All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is Chris, Christopher Michaels, who we're only going to refer to him uh, by that this first time because his gamer name is Monte Cristo um, and we're going to call him Monty. So Monty, thank you uh, for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So, so you've got this sort of really, really impressive kind of resume in career and career in the esports and gaming world. Um, tell us a little bit both kind of how you got into all of it. Like how does someone become you? And then specifically kind of what are the things that you're proud of that, that you've been able to do so far? Uh, well, it was it's interesting because I have now been in esports for about 17 years, which is obviously goes back to some of the earliest days uh, of the industry. So I'm one of the kind of original people within this scene. Of course, there are people who have been here longer than I have, but uh, I, I have one of the longest 10 years, that's for sure. I started as a uh, basically a sports fan um, and a gamer, and so those things collided in terms of esports interest. Uh, because for me, watching professional video games is no different than watching the NFL. They're basically right. the same same thing to me, yep. um, and I view them in in basically precisely the same way. Uh, I was also a stage actor, and so I could apply my skills in terms of diction, uh, performance to broadcasting. And so I started being a, an esports sportscaster or what we call a shoutcaster uh, most of the time. And from there, um, I started to get involved in team management. And then so over the years, I mean, briefly, I've been a broadcaster across seven or eight different professional games at this point in time. I uh, lived in South Korea working for a television station there for five years being a broadcaster. I've owned professional teams. I've been a professional coach. I helped uh, create and consult on the creation of the Overwatch League. Um, so I've worked with numerous traditional sports owners in terms of um, getting them set up in the esports world, founded my own consulting firm. I am now the commissioner of Flashpoint, which is a Counter-Strike League. Uh, so I've, I've kind of done a lot of things. Got it. And then, you know, just for the listeners here who aren't as familiar with your world, 
as as they may be. Um, I don't, that sentence didn't even make any sense. But but give, give, if you don't mind, give the listeners a sense of kind of how big this industry is. Because I, I think it's going to shock a lot of them. Uh, so there's kind of two approaches you can take on this. A lot of people have heard of the hype of esports. Um, so it is you know up and coming. Millions of viewers on major tournaments uh, in major titles. However, I would also say that it is smaller than than people think once they've heard of it. Which means that we're still about one percent of the size of general gaming as a whole now gaming is a titanic industry these days um so it's you know esports is growing but i think in the grand scheme of gaming it's still small got it and and what did covid mean for it did, did how how much did it change that world did it expedite it did it slow it you know what, what how did your life change uh, well, you know, it, it was an interesting time to be in the industry because we're so used to having what we call LANs, which means local area network, which is a in-person competition, right? But we also, as an industry, have the advantage of being able to move online uh, for our professional matches and play remotely. Uh, now, this introduces many problems in terms of latency. Your uh, players ping and delay uh, to each other. So, you know, when you input a key command or a mouse click, uh, you have more delay, significantly more if you're playing remotely. And there are also potentially competitive integrity issues with people cheating without refs there being on stage, um, you know, on computers provided by the competition. But for the most part, we had a relatively, I would say, smooth transition. And an, unlike traditional sports, at least we had an option uh, to play online, if that makes sense. Right. And so... Um, while a lot of traditional sports were shut down, uh, our viewership went up. People wanted to watch competition. Uh, also, while people were under quarantine or under various COVID restrictions, uh, it was something that they could do inside for free uh, yeah. because all, all esports competitions are broadcast on platforms like Twitch or YouTube or other streaming services, and m almost all of them are, are, are free to watch. So Yeah, totally. I, I saw this. I have, I have a 15-year-old daughter, 12-year-old son. And during the pandemic, he had a much easier time of it. And I do believe it's because he's a gamer and he was kind of able to continue doing what he likes to do and socializing with his friends over the PS5 or whatever system they're using. And it made the experience less painful for him as a result. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a great thing to do, you know, over the pandemic. It was still a way to socialize and meet people if you're a player. And then if you're a fan, we were the only thing still in competition outside of, you know, some some sports like Formula One were able to take their drivers and then play the the video game version of Formula right. One for the, in, you know, in lieu of the races, which I think is really fascinating. And I, I'm an F1 fan. And uh, you know, Formula One is effectively at this point a real life video game because you're essentially using a, a video game controller to drive the car in real life. And so those skills are highly transferable into the, the digital version of Formula One. So they were doing that as well. But, you know, most sports, as, as everybody's aware, shut down. Uh, I think this was a great boon to viewership. I think one of the problems was that in terms of capitalizing from a business perspective on this viewership, and as the commissioner of a Counter-Strike League, I was myself was running events and, and in sales uh, during this process. And while our viewership was good, one of the core issues that we had was many companies shut down their marketing departments or closed their marketing budgets because they just didn't know what the future held. So with those budgets frozen, it became very hard to monetize um, to monetize the numbers that we were getting at the time. Right. So think kind of in the future, crystal ball, five years, 10 years, where do you want this whole industry to go? And, and where do you think it will go? 
I think it's extremely hard to know. Uh, as somebody who's been here for so long, it's virtually impossible to predict the next big game or the way that technology is going to move. So, for example, uh, you know, esports was relatively small from the late, well, in in the West, like in Korea, it was enormous uh, from the late 90s because it was broadcast on television and was more or less uh, more of a part of mainstream culture. But it really didn't get big in the West. It was very niche uh, in the West until um, basically, you know, 2010, 2011, when the big streaming services like Twitch started to come online and people's internet connections got good enough to receive, you know, high definition streamed, um, streamed games. And so that's when everything started to really take off. And in conjunction with uh, games like Counter-Strike, Global Offensive, and League of Legends, uh, it really just was a rocket uh, for, you know, from 2010 up until 2015, 2016. And then it, it more or less started to stabilize. And I, I think we saw certain games, uh, you know, come out like Fortnite that were very popular in terms of individual streaming, but maybe they weren't so successful as esports. And I think it's important for people to realize that there's a really big difference between competitive gaming and esports. Like, you know, esports is the structure, the leagues, the professional play that people watch. It's not an individual streamer like Ninja playing Fortnite on Twitch. That's not esports, right? That's just individual stream viewership. So while Fortnite was very successful in terms of individual stream viewership, wasn't very successful in esports. And, you know, it's only once every few years that we get a game that takes off in popularity that can support a major esports viewership. Um, and those genres change as technology evolves. So it's, I think, five, 10 years from now, depending on how well VR technology does, there's a possibility that we might start seeing VR esports for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's tough to say. And, you know, we see this kind of both rise of sports betting platforms like FanDuel and DraftKings. Uh, it, it seems to be only a matter of time between the, the broadcasts of the NFL or the NBA are kind of integrated with kind of on-screen betting of, of one type or another. Um, is there a corollary for that in esports? And if so, you know, what do you think it should look like? Oh, we're way ahead of those other of, of professional sports leagues in the U.S. in terms of betting. Um, uh, you know, I like I said, I run this Counter Strike League. We've had numerous uh, wagering partners. You see. Uh, you know, DraftKings uh, is involved in esports. Uh, mm -hmm. I used to actually run podcasts sponsored by FanDuel's um, esports imprint, Alpha Draft, back yep. in like 2015. Yep, yep. Um, so I've been working with them. That was before it was made illegal in the States and it was re-legalized. So you see a lot of interest from these companies in esports. But we do heavy betting integrations in Counter-Strike. Uh, I think with other games, the issue for betting sponsors is that uh, for example, Riot, who makes League of Legends, and Activision Blizzard, who make Overwatch and Call of Duty, and they have these major esports leagues, uh, they actually restrict that category. So they will not allow sponsorship on those leagues or with the teams within those leagues. So it's more of an issue of uh, the developers blocking those categories rather than a lack of interest or engagement from, from betting sponsors. What's the kind of age kind of, of, of a digital native in the sense of you know, at, at one point, obviously, as the technology was newer, um, you know, it was probably mainly limited to younger people who were more adaptive to it. But but as people get older, 
Uh, do they kind of does their does their esports usage and interest kind of tail off, or does it just continue because it's something that they like doing and grew up with? I mean, I can just speak in my own experience. Like, I grew up in Colorado as a Denver Broncos fan. I continue to watch all the Denver Broncos games. I, like I said early on, I consider esports and sports the same to me. I'm 35 years old. I continue to watch esports. I, I have, you know, the Halo major up on my second monitor while we're, we're recording this podcast, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I continue to watch all of these games. And I think that as the audience gets older, it's just going to be like traditional sports where the majority demographic are adult men, 25 plus. Um, that's kind of the where my podcasts and, and content are you know that's tailored to that audience basically so i know they exist and continue to enjoy games and i think that there are certain games uh particularly counter-strike um that haven't really changed a lot in the last 20 years since they were released and so that allows people to continue playing these games and even if they no longer have the time to play it's still very easy for fans who played counter-strike 10 years ago to watch a modern counter-strike event because the fundamentals of the game uh, and the maps and everything are are pretty much the same. Um, tell me kind of, obviously, because of, of Facebook uh, changing its name to Meta, there's been a lot of attention paid recently to the Metaverse, and then other people kind of very excited about Web3. Um, what's your take on it? And and, and it would seem like esports is, is so well positioned to benefit from that. Um, how, how are you thinking about it? I, I honestly haven't put too much thought into it. <laughs> like, I, I kind of think that a lot of the theorization around the metaverse is kind of bullshit you know yeah. frankly like yeah, no, nobody point, yeah. nobody knows what the technology is going to evolve into so i think it's way too soon to theorize i will say that on a long enough timeline i don't think that there is going to be a fundamental difference between sports and esports i think that in the future those two things are going to converge once we have perfect vr and you know, uh, suits with sensors that could uh, translate an athlete's speed and strength into a digital arena. I think that that is really where you're going to see exciting things like digital versions of Roman gladiatorial arenas where people are actually fighting, but with significantly like not deadly consequences, right? Uh, where the the viewer is seeing a digital recreation while the fighters are in an arena wearing motion sensitive suits, right? There's there's tons of stuff that can be done with VR in the future, but it's all perfectly theoretical right now. But I, I don't think that in 50 years, there's going to be a, a big difference between esports and, and regular sports. Right. Um, and, and are you worried about kind of the Amazons and Facebooks ultimately dominating the, the category? or Or do you feel like the industry is sort of sufficiently both kind of established and diverse enough um, to, to not end up being controlled by a handful of players. I mean, I don't think that, I think that the main problem is not necessarily which company it is, whether it's Amazon or Facebook or the current major publishers and developers like yeah. Activision Blizzard or Riot yeah. or Valve. I think the core issue that we have to struggle with in esports is that all of the intellectual property problems that we have. So for example, you know, I could, we've seen this with the XFL, like you could create a competing American football league 
Now, it may not be wise to do so, but there nobody owns the intellectual property of the sport of football. The problem that we we struggle with is that the developers themselves own the IP, and that means they own every instance of the IP, including YouTube videos made by independent content creators. Technically, they own all the IP on that. Now, they don't enforce those rights because they realize that it's better to have the marketing than to try and monetize everyone's videos that puts you know, content of their game up on YouTube. But it also means that no one else can broadcast competition without explicit licenses from the developers. And so basically they have a monopoly on the professional competition of this game. And I find in my history with developers that they are really not very good. It's not their core competency to create esports products. It's mm -hmm. their core competency to develop games. And that lack of competition really breeds um, an air of of laziness and, yeah. and kind of incompetence within the developers, which is why you know I enjoy working in Valve's ecosystem because Valve basically just has an open ecosystem for tournament operators, yeah. and so we push ourselves in the in Counter Strike to be better. Um, but a lot of developers have closed ecosystems, and that's highly problematic. And I think that it's it's kind of ridiculous that they're able to own every single inst broadcast instance of their intellectual property. Right. Yeah. So you're getting towards the same problems that you see uh, people like at the FTC or Elizabeth Warren saying about about Facebook or Google or Apple, which is, you know, a handful of companies controlling everything, closed systems, innovation gets stifled, yep. uh, ultimately consumers suffer. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it in the context of, of esports, but it, it makes perfect sense. So you're the commissioner of Flashpoint, which is a, a Counter-Strike League. Um, you know, people in the traditional sports world love to hate whoever the commissioner is, or Roger Goodell at the <laughs> NFL, or Rob Manfred at baseball, with constantly some sort of problem with, with all of these leagues. Um, what's it like for you? Do you get a lot of shit from people? What's, what does your job actually entail? Uh, well, I mean, I'm in charge ultimately of the rules and the rule book enforcing those rules. I'm also the on on camera host for like what is effectively like the halftime desk or the pre-show desk. So I'm also on the broadcast. Um, you know, uh, I set up the formats of our tournaments. I, I also am a producer, create, you know, managing and creating the content. Um, I also manage partner relationships with the aforementioned betting companies and other sponsors that we've had to make sure all of our deliverables get done and, and into the broadcast. So I do a lot of, I do a lot, um, both on camera and off camera, uh, for the, for Flashpoint. I will say, I think the difference with me compared to a, a Roger Goodell is that I have spent almost two decades building up significant goodwill with the audience. And so <laughs> generally, you know, I, I'm kind of a no nonsense uh, truth sayer within the space. So I think for the most part, fans generally trust me um, because I have that experience and a long, long history of interacting with the fans. So I think, you know, that that helps me a lot. And I can clearly articulate when I might be making an unpopular decision and people are generally pretty understanding. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very easy to hate the kind of Roger Goodells of the world. So as you, because you're, you're involved in this in so many different angles from, from a gamer to a commissioner to a broadcaster to so many other things. What does it take to kind of bring esports fully into the mainstream where it's sort of the equivalent of traditional sports? And who are the people doing it? 
I mean, I don't, I don't want it to be mainstream. So, so what do you, but, but, <laughs> the, the bigger it is, how is that not better for you ultimately given kind of your economic interests? I mean, you just assume that I want more money, which I don't. Yes, that is totally true. <laughs> I am a very basic assumption and Monty and I have obviously never met before. So you're right. I, I feel so, like you're projecting onto me. Well, you know, I'm a venture capitalist. So I know. I, you know, I, the only way that my head works is, is like that. So, okay, well, then let's actually, that, that your response is more interesting. So do you think that the majority of gamers who are really engaged right now would prefer not to see real growth and see the community stays kind of the way it is, or do you think people want the same legitimacy that you see with, you know, the NFL or, or FIFA or whatever? I mean, I think we have legitimacy within our space. I'm just not interested. I, look, I'm a hard, I started my career in terms of casting as I'm a color commentator. I'm a hardcore analyst. You know, when I go on a broadcast and I'm doing that kind of work, what I want to do is to provide very hot, you know, very in-depth uh, nitty gritty commentary. And the larger the the casual audience, the less I get to do that and the less I get to enjoy that from other broadcasts. Uh, so for me, it's more of an intellectual exercise. You know, if I wanted to make a lot of money, I wouldn't have gone into esports. It's just, that's it. Like, I love this industry and I love the transparency and I love the authenticity and I don't want to trade that for money. I make fine money, you know? <laughs> I, I'm good on the, on the money front. I think I'm you know, compensated fairly to live, you know, a, a, an enjoyable lifestyle, but I don't need a lot of money to make me happy. What makes me happy is that this industry continues not to be overrun by outsiders who are honestly making the products worse a lot of the time. When we get people coming in from traditional sports, they tend to have very bad ideas that they infect our space with, make the fans mad and make a worse product. So my my answer is I want to do well, obviously, financially, but not I don't want to do better financially at the cost of destroying the thing that I have spent 17 years to build and that I love. So, OK, that all makes total sense. And, and it definitely taught me a lesson here. But uh, given that we live in a highly capitalist society where everything kind of tends to work towards one goal. Um, is it feasible to kind of continue to protect the, the sector from those kinds of influences, or there's just the more adoption it gets, the, the greater the risk. I just think that the people who built this industry from the ground up need to be empowered so that we can kind of protect against those worse, the worse impulses. I'm not really concerned because esports isn't in danger of going mainstream right now. At the end of the day, most esports viewers are players of the game, right? Uh, you know, I never played on a on a American football team, but I watched the NFL. I think that's a common experience. It would be a rare experience for somebody to be a hardcore fan of an esport and not be an active player in the game. So until we have a game that is absolutely and so big that everyone is playing it and playing it for multiple decades, uh, I think that it's unlikely that we're going to break into the mainstream because so many of these games are very unfriendly to casual viewers, uh, very difficult to watch if you don't play. There are some exceptions. Counter-Strike being one of them is, is one of the easier ones, but it's still difficult, I think, for many people to get into and enjoy if they're not a gamer. Now, you know, current generations, basically everybody's a gamer. So that might change in 10 years. Uh, who knows? But I think it's it's a little bit tough right now. And I don't really see mainstream adoption. Like I, you know, we occasionally have the tournaments on national television, on ESPN or something like that, but it's few and far between. And 
You know, I have no interest in going into linear TV or being part of that world, really, because it's not where our audience lives. And our audience is enthusiastic and, and big enough right now, in my opinion. Uh, how much do you care about the physical kind of events in terms of people packing arenas and things like that? Is that important in your mind to sort of serve the community uh, and, and meet the demand? Or um, is that does it really could it exist 100% digitally and that would be just fine? I mean, I enjoy doing arena events for major finals. I've done many stadiums and, and cast in many stadiums myself uh, over the years. And it's part of that environment really translates beautifully to, you know, the hype that even at home viewers can feel. So there's something really special about those moments. Uh, I think that, you know, we're a very, very long way away from every eSport every e game in a league or in a, over the course of a tournament, especially in the early stages, being played in front of a live audience. But for major finals, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense and it really adds a lot uh, to the experience overall. What, what do you think is happening? So it seems like in South Korea, for example, you mentioned you even live there, um, the, the notion of people packing arenas and, and really kind of getting excited about this ha happened before it did here in the U.S., what are you seeing now in South Korea or other countries that you think will eventually kind of come to the, the community here? I mean, I think most of the stuff from Korea already has arrived in the West at this point in time. There's not a huge fundamental difference. It's just that, you know, Korea was packing stadiums in 2005. So it took until I think the first time I did a major arena event was at the Staples Center in 2013, at the end of 2013, which was the the third uh, League of Legends World Championship. Um, that was the kind of a, the first time I was part of a major kind of name brand arena uh, event. And then from there, it's it's pretty common, I would say, these days. We've had major events in many stadiums across America and Europe. Uh, so it's pretty much the same, I would say, between Korea and North America and Europe right now. And is is there a version of the Olympics for esports, or if not, would it be good if there were? I mean, I don't want the Olympics to have anything to do with esports, frankly. Yeah, but what if what if you came up with like it's your own kind of every four years, the greatest gamers in the world all congregate and. Tokyo or whatever it is. is that I mean, we already have that every year in each individual game. Like we get to watch the world championship in League of Legends or the international in Dota or the majors right. in Counter-Strike. So for me, it's really no different. So what would you want to do? I mean, it sounds like you just from talking to you for 20 something minutes, you are extremely happy and content with the industry the way it is in terms of the community. <laughs> in terms of the size, I mean, yeah. like I said. What do you want to change? I mean, would you just change nothing if I gave you a magic wand or what would you do to make it different and better? I would remove the intellectual property laws that prevent competition with developer-run esports because I run an independent tournament operator and I think I can do a better job than these developers. So what I would like is for... Uh, there to be actual competition in every single esport amongst tournament operators and broadcasters so that we can actually have you know a better circuit and better tournaments um, and, and is, is there a world where that happens and you're trying to make that happen or i think the only world in which that happens it is a world in which intellectual property law is changed yeah yeah I, well you know what if, if there's enough money at stake and you, you hire the right kind of lawyers run the right campaign then you know and anything generally can can get done uh it just it just takes as the crypto community is learning it just takes a lot of resources and, and it takes actually being politically savvy and uh and fluent and and not just you know having a high market cap or uh, or, or or something like that 
Um, do, do you get involved? I mean, obviously you're an active gamer in, in game design at all. No, I'm not a designer. Uh, you know, it's uh, I, I sometimes have given feedback to developers when I've worked on developer run leagues, particularly with Overwatch and the Overwatch League. But at the end of the day, um, it, it, there's there's a very big difference between what I want and what developers want a lot of the time. What I want is game design that basically raises the ceiling of the game and makes as much skill like raises the skill cap to allow professional players the 0.001% in order to do beautiful things within the game. Now, most developers are primarily concerned with balancing the game and creating the game for what is effectively a casual audience. And so they will implement things that either lower the skill cap or change the game in ways that is not very conducive sometimes to my ability to appreciate the very best in the world playing it. Um, so I would say that I, I kind of have a, a different set of goals than most developers when it comes to sure. their games. Sure. So last question, if, if someone's listening to this podcast and they're saying, okay, I know very little about this world and Monty's already said that a lot of it kind of isn't that intuitive if I'm not a gamer uh, to watch, what would you sort of encourage them to watch or read or play to start kind of understanding your world better? I mean, I think that Counter-Strike is the most intuitive game in the world because it uses real world weapons, um, you know, AK-47s, Desert Eagles. Uh, you know, you can understand it even if you don't understand anything about video games. It's a five versus five game where one team is trying to plant the bomb and the other basically they're playing offense and the other team is playing defense and trying to either stop uh, all the five players on the other team by killing them or by defusing the bomb after it's planted. And so there's an economy to the game where, you know, the more kills you get, the more money you have to put it in very basic terms. Um, and so you, you buy different guns in, and it's played in rounds. So it really has a nice flow to it, uh, over the course of, of an entire match. And I think that it is a game that is very simple at its core and is understandable by people, even those who do not play video games and is also, uh, you know, they just had a major that went off very well, which is one of the, the very big tournaments every year. Typically there are. In the past, there have been two or three. This was the first major since the start of COVID because we couldn't have one uh, in person, but it took place at the Avicii Arena in Stockholm in Sweden. And there'll be another major coming up uh, kind of in the spring next year. So there will be, there's a lot of tournaments right now uh, to watch. Blast is an independent tournament operator that is quite wonderful, that is running their kind of year-end event right now. And uh, also there's uh, probably, I think, what... The, a player who most people would consider the very best player in any esport right now, who is uh, a Ukrainian man named Simple, who plays for a team called Navi, N-A-V-I, and uh, they just won the major and they've been doing very well. So it's a, it's an exciting time to, to watch one of the very best. Cool. There we go. Monty, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you.